Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning again. It is uh, man, my privilege this morning to be able to deliver the message today. And I just want to start off by thanking you for worshiping, just being able to stand kind of backstage, listening to your voices. I'm just thankful for the, what the Spirit of God's doing in the lives of our church and, and just the, the strength of our proclamation as a church as we worship Him. So that is such a blessing to be a part of. And if you're a first-time guest, I, I really hope that you were blessed by that. Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and find your way back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And uh, we have been in a series working through this uh, really incredible book for several weeks now. And so um, our job this morning is to tackle two chapters uh, this morning, Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 11. And uh, we're going to be doing a, a real cursory flyover this morning because there is so much content in these two chapters uh, it would be impossible for us to be able to work through all of it this morning. Uh, but I'll, I'll kind of explain why we're going to try to do these both together because they, they go hand in hand with one another. But I'm going to invite you this week to make a point to read through Daniel chapters 10 and 11 at least one time, if not more. Uh, on your way in, possibly, it looked like we had run out, but uh, maybe you got a copy of the, the secondary handout that was out on the tables as you walked in. Um, it is available digitally. You can scan the sermon notes, QR code, and the seat back in front of you, or you can find it on the website this week. But this is a great handout that's going to explain a lot of stuff in chapter 11 that um, if you just read it without some study helps, might be a little bit confusing to kind of make sense of. But this book has been amazing. And so if you're a first-time guest, I want to give us just a little bit of background, kind of where we are, so that you can feel like you're connected to what we're teaching and going through this morning. Uh, Daniel was an actual person. He's a historical figure. And he uh, lived and uh, his people, the Israelites, had been conquered by Babylon. This was something that God had allowed because Israel had been disobedient to God. They had decided to not listen to God not obey God and to worship false gods. And God had warned them that if they turned their hearts and directed their worship to another God, he would allow them to be conquered and dispersed. And that happened. And so Daniel was a part of that. And he was taken with a group of people to Babylon as a slave. We believe he was in his late teenage years. And Daniel was taken as a slave. And this book of Daniel is his account of what God did uh, around him and through him during his time in Babylon. We, we guesstimate about 66 to 70 years of his life was spent in Babylon. And Daniel was favored by God in such a way that not only was he just there as an exile, as a slave, he was actually used by God to deliver messages, interpret dreams, to be a key figure uh, for the people of Israel while they resided in Babylon. And so in this book, you have kind of two divisions. The first half of the book of Daniel is historical narrative. It's telling us the story of what took place and some significant events that happened in the life of Daniel and some of his friends. But in the last half of the book, chapter 7 through 12, we see a recording of several different prophetic visions that God gave Daniel um, to deliver to the Israelite people. Now we had mentioned before that when we get into the second half of Daniel, it gets a little bit tricky because prophecy is a, is a little bit difficult. Um, prophecy is something that is predicted. It's a, it's a word that is predicted of an event, you know, specific details of something that's going to happen in the future. And so 
when prophecy is written, it is meant to be trusted. And, and the people of Israel and God gave really strict guidelines for how to in, even interpret someone who says they have a prophecy to share. And if that prophecy didn't come through exactly how it was predicted, that person's prophecy and what they said should have been rejected. And the person that had actually uttered those words should be dealt with very strictly, even potentially put to death. So prophecy was no joke to the people of Israel. But that doesn't mean that we should avoid what's in here because over a quarter of the Bible, when it was originally written, was prophetic. It was talking about things that were to come. And scripture claims, God claims that as he's given this word, these are his words given to man, that everything that was written down by those authors were God's words is profitable. So if we believe that God's word's profitable, all of it, Old Testament, New Testament, and that a quarter of its prophecy, then we need to do the work as, as good Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, to try to understand what it's in, what's, what it means, why was it written, how does it apply to us today? We shouldn't just skip over it. And one of the advantages that we have today is the fact that the Bible promises those who believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation, the gift of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the moment they believe in the gospel for their salvation. And the Holy Spirit is now our aid, our tutor, helps us understand these spiritual things that we read to give us more and more understanding. So this morning, we're going to be, we're getting towards the end of this book. There's only three chapters left, 10, 11, and 12. And in those chapters, we read about Daniel's final vision, the final vision he receives from the Lord. And we're going we're gonna to look at it this morning. And my desire is that as we start to understand some of the things that, some of the observations we want to highlight, that we'll be reminded that when we can see God not only make a prophecy, but fulfill it, it should stir our faith. It should inspire us to trust God more. That he said it, and when it comes to pass perfectly through the course of human history, that gives us confidence to trust his future prophecies that are yet to come. Because you might not know that there are, but there are actually prophecies in the Bible that are still to happen in the future. And some people debate and they question, they're like, Does that, is that really going to happen? Is it even possible for somebody to prophesy? Well, we as believers, since we study the whole scriptures and we don't want to skip out over anything, we go, yes, we can trust that future prophecy because God's already proven that when he makes a prophetic statement, he fulfills it perfectly. And we go to places like Daniel to support that trust and that belief. So my, my hope for us this morning is as we begin to tackle chapters 10 and 11, that our hearts and minds would be not only stirred by, man, this is amazing. This is incredible. There's so much good stuff in here. But that would also be comforted to know that when things are chaotic, we have a place to direct our focus. When things get chaotic, we have a place that we can go that's not just kind of sticking our head in the sand and ignoring what's going around in the world, but actually a place where we can look and go, it helps us make sense of what's happening in the world and it gives us a hope that this is not all that there's going to be. There's something much greater waiting for us, all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of hit some sections of Daniel 10. Again, there's, there's just a lot in there. But the reason we wanted to cover two chapters today and then we'll finish up next week is because chapter 10 and 11 are kind of connected. In chapter 10, we're going to see that Daniel um, is, he's in a season of mourning. He's struggling. 
And he prays to God and asks God for understanding. And God sends an angel to give him understanding and gives him this last vision to help him kind of lay out the things that are going to happen. And that happens in chapter 11. So we don't want to read just chapter 10 of this interaction of him and these angels and then not get to 11. So that's why we're going to try to tackle them together. But because of time, it's going to be a quick flyover. So I really want to encourage you, if you didn't get a copy of uh, the handout that we had with the notes, to call the office, go online, scan the code, and get that. It'll be very helpful in your private study this week. And so with that said, let's turn our attention to Daniel chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. If you're able, would you stand with me? We're going to read the first 12 verses of Daniel chapter 10. We're going to read Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. If you're ready, say ready. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. The message was true and was about a great conflict. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any rich food, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put any oil on my body until three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a gold, with a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. I was left alone, looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale, and I was powerless. I heard the words he said, and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me and set me, shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I am saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. And after he said this to me, I stood trembling. Don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me. From for the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. Do you believe that God hears our prayers? He does. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, I just ask you right now to to help us set aside any distractions that we've kind of brought into the room this morning, the things that are waiting for us after we leave, and that you'd cause us now to draw all of our attention to your word. And as we begin to to unpack it and to have uh, some considerations this morning, God, would you use your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of what you want us to take away this morning? I pray this in your son's name. Amen. There are four observations I want to highlight. We're going to kind of work through them one at a time and and look at several key portions of these two chapters. Remember, Daniel here didn't choose this, didn't choose to be in exile, didn't choose to be one who was visited by God, didn't choose to be one who was given a special ability by God. But we see consistently throughout the whole book of Daniel that Daniel was faithful to that call. He was faithful to the Lord. And the first thing that we notice here is that God responds to humble prayer. 
Now that point might surprise you, but it's going to be the, the theme of all four points this morning is for us to focus our attention on God. We could focus on Daniel and we could focus on all the finer points of the actual prophecy. But I think I want, it's important for us this morning to actually look beyond that and look to the God who's, who's all throughout these two chapters and learn some things about him this morning. The first thing we see is that he responds to humble prayer. It says here in Daniel chapter 10, verse 2, that Daniel was mourning for three full weeks. So the obvious question is, why is he mourning? What's he upset about? What is discouraging him or distressing him? Well, it mentions here that he received this vision in the third year of King Cyrus. And what we know from history is that in the first year of, his, of Cyrus's reign, after they conquered Babylon, he actually made it possible for the Jews who had been in exile in Babylon for all those years to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild their city and their wall and their temple. This was, a, this was great news. And it, and it was news that they had expected because God said it would be a season in captivity, then God would bring relief and they would go back to Jerusalem. But as we read in the Old Testament book of Ezra, which gives us another historical perspective of what's going on in this time, the people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple, and restore the worship there. But even when they went back to Jerusalem, they continued to face persecution by the other people that were surrounding that area. And this was discouraging to Daniel. Daniel had believed that this was going to be a season of captivity. Then God would set them free as they confessed and repented their sin. And he would send them back. And he did. He provided this way. And yet they're still facing persecution. And so it tells us that Daniel prayed to the Lord. Later on in there, it said uh, in verse 12 that he had sent this prayer. And that the Lord heard it. And the Lord sent an angel to go to Daniel directly and to answer that prayer. Why did he do that? I think it's because of how he prayed. Now this morning, I'm not going to give you a prescription for how you can pray so that God sends an angel to you to answer that prayer in person. I think that would be very terrifying. In fact, he was terrified by that. But why did God respond to that prayer? I think there's something we see in Daniel that we see consistently throughout the Bible. And I think it's one of the principles I want to hold up for us this morning and consider. Humble prayer. Daniel's distressed. What he's seen going on around him doesn't make sense to him and doesn't seem to be fitting what he is understanding about the Bible. But what does he do? It tells us here in verse 12, the angel says to Daniel, don't be afraid for from the first day that you purpose to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. Daniel does two things here that I think you and I need to be doing anytime we start to feel distressed by the chaotic world that's around us. When things don't seem to make sense and they don't seem to line up with what we believe we're reading in the Bible. He purposed in himself to, 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 to find out and to seek knowledge from God and God alone. He purposed in his heart to understand. God, I want to understand. So I'm going to wrestle with this. I'm going to, I'm going to patiently seek to understand it from your perspective. And so I'm coming to you humbly and I'm laying myself before you, seeking your will and asking for you to give me understanding. I think those are the types of prayer that God responds to. The reason I believe that is we see it again throughout scripture. And for one example, I want to read to you. It's in 1 John chapter 5. You can join me there or just listen to me as I read this. 
But listen to what 1 John in the New Testament, this is written by one of the men that followed Jesus, was one of his disciples. John says this, this is the confidence that we have before him. So he's speaking about believers. He's speaking as a believer to other believers. This is the confidence that we believers have going to God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now there's other places in scripture that say you ask things from God, you take your prayer request to him, but you don't get your prayers answered because you ask with the wrong motives. But that's not what Daniel did. And that's not what the apostle John encourages us to do, which says, if you seek the Lord and say, Lord, I want to understand your will. I want to know what you're about, what you would have me do, what you would say is the next right step. And I'm not moving off of that until you give me clarity on that. I'm not going to be self-reliant, which would be a form of pride and arrogance. I'm going to be spiritually reliant. I'm going to wait on you. Humility. The Bible says God answers that. And we have a living example here in this this account, because this is not make-believe. This isn't a fairy tale story. This is an actual historical account that Daniel's writing from the first person perspective saying, this is what happened. God responds to humble prayer. But here's my question for us this morning. Have we allowed Google to replace God? And what I mean by that is when we start to feel distressed and we're struggling and we're searching for answers, it's our default to go to the Lord in humble prayer, asking God to give us perspective, asking God to help us understand his will, or do we go searching for answers outside of him? Now, Google, I had to use Google to get this image. It's like Google's not wrong in itself. But the reality is, is that I think we're often more inclined to go places where we can get answers quickly than putting ourselves before the Lord and praying for his will and then having to wait. I mean, he's mourning for three weeks. He's in this process saying, I, this is, I'm struggling with this, but I, I'm praying this and I'm waiting for the Lord to help me understand it. What do you do? I think the, the example from us, for us to follow here, just to consider this morning, is are we taking the things that are making us anxious, the things that are distressing us, are we taking those to the Lord and asking him to provide understanding of his will and doing that humbly and saying, Lord, we're not going to take this into our own hands. We're not going to make it happen as fast as we want or what we think would be best. We're going to wait on you. That's what Daniel's done. And it's not just in chapter 10. He does this consistently throughout the book. He's a man of prayer. In fact, he was cast into a den of lions because he was faithful to praying, even though they had tricked the king to make a rule that said, if you prayed, you get thrown into the lion's den. He was a man of faithful prayer. Are we? And so Daniel has this great vision. He has this this vision. He sees this this man that's standing before him. And we get this beautiful description of him standing in this white linen with a gold belt. And his face was this brilliant shining of lightning and his eyes were like flaming torches and his arms and feet were like polished bronze and his sounds were like a multitude of words. He sees this angelic being. There's much debate on, on the, who this could be. Um, some people believe that this is one angel that's kind of consistently talked about in Daniel chapter 10. But there are also people that believe that this was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ before he came on and took human flesh. 
that it was actually Christ that was standing there that Daniel was able to see. This, this angelic being. And the reason they believe that is because this description here is very similar to descriptions in other parts of the Bible that are clearly describing Jesus Christ. And so if that is the case, then when we get to verse 10 here, there's a shift and it's another angelic being that actually touches him. Let me explain why. Let's continue reading in our text, starting at verse 13. So this angel comes and tells Daniel, don't be afraid. Your prayers were heard. I have been sent because of your prayers. And then look what it says in verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in those last days. For the vision refers to those days. Our second point that I want to highlight for us that is here is that God rules the hidden realm. The reason why there's a belief here that this is a secondary angel and not Christ is because this angel talks about an angelic battle that he was in in regards to that he needed help with in order to continue on to Daniel and to fulfill what God had sent him to do by giving Daniel understanding of what was going to happen in the last days. If this truly was Christ in those first few First part, he wouldn't need any help. He's God. But he sends these angels and these angels are coming and and they're described here. And what we understand here is that when it says in verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days, he's actually referring to a demonic angel, a a fallen angel, a, a satanically influenced angel who was there, who's trying to influence things. And that This angel that had been sent, some people believe it could be the angel Gabriel. Some people believe it could be a different angel. Uh, There's not too many angels actually specifically named in the Bible. He's there and he's, he's, he's defending that area. We understand that he's actually there defending that area and these demons are trying to get at him because he, he calls here, it says in the end of verse 13, that he had been left there. That word left actually indicates the idea that he had, there had already been a victory won there and he had been left there to defend it and he's getting attacked and there's this angelic battle going on, this angelic conflict. It's pretty, pretty incredible. Now, if you're new to church or this is your first Sunday and you came on a day where we're talking about prophecy and angels, I know this seems a little bit weird. But I believe the Bible clearly teaches, and I, and I live my life based on what the Bible says, I believe the Bible clearly teaches that there is a hidden realm, a spiritual realm, a, a heavenly realm that exists right now. It's existed before creation. It continues to exist. That we cannot perceive with our natural senses, but we know it to be true because of what is referred to and what is taught in the Bible. And this is one passage in scripture where we're kind of, the curtain is pulled back and we're actually told about it. And there are a couple of things that we learn about this hidden realm. Is one that it's real, but two is that angelic activity can influence the physical world. Uh, we, We know this as spiritual warfare. That there is this ability to, to, to be able to, uh, influence what's going on in the physical world. Now, we don't have a lot of time to unpack that and and try to understand it in its complexity. So why talk about it this morning? Well, one, it's in the passage. We don't want to skip over that. But two, the reality is, is that God rules over that. The Bible talks about that Satan has already been defeated. Christ defeated sin and death on the cross. 
He has been buried in the tomb and rose three days later victoriously over that. So the, 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 the end battle has been secured, but Satan has not been finally dealt with yet. He's continuing to try to distract the world, to plague the world, to, to cause people to not believe in Jesus, to, to blind hearts and minds. He's trying to discourage believers, accuse believers, devour believers, devour people. I mean, he, he, he's not, he's a, 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 a person who's not out for our good. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are called to put on an armor. It's called the armor of God where we can fight off this spiritual warfare that's taken place. The Bible uses terminology like fiery darts. Let me read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 it says, Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having been prepared, having prepared everything to take your stand. We don't need to be fearful. If The Bible says that if we have believed in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit has indwelt us. We are sealed with that indwelling. That's never going to, be, it's never going to leave us. It's never going to be taken away. And that protects us from the enemy. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have these little fiery darts thrown at us that are going to try to distract us and discourage us and tempt us and all those things. But because Christ, the Christ that's in us, the Holy Spirit that's in us is greater than that enemy, we actually have the ability to live in victory from that, to thwart off this spiritual warfare. And what we, we see a little picture of this here, that even though there are these angelic beings that are trying to influence this time where there's all kinds of chaos and there's all these kingdoms that are coming in and all those kingdoms are persecuting the Jewish people, God's people, the people that God said are gonna be the people through whom the Messiah is going to come. That God is also actively out there protecting and influencing and guarding against those satanic forces. And so God rules this hidden realm. Sometimes when we talk about angels and spiritual warfare, some people want to put that in the category of ghosts and, and haunted things. Some people want to say, oh, that's just make-believe. It's not real. It's very real. And yet we as believers don't need to be afraid because the God we serve, the God that... We, are, we have believed in by faith that the God who has sent his spirit to indwell us is greater and has the power. His vast strength is what protects us. His vast strength is that it gives us the ability to discern what the enemy's trying to do and how it's trying to trick us and deceive us and tempt us and allow us to be able to say no to that and to say, I'm going to continue to keep my eyes fixed on Christ. And even though I might be persecuted and, and things might get tough, I'm never going to feel like I'm going to be, be overwhelmed to the point where I'm going to be demolished because Christ has sent his spirit to be in me and I'm in him. This is a great comfort to us. I think it would be a great comfort to those people of Israel, knowing that there's all kinds of this oppression and this spiritual realm is real and you guys are in captivity, but take heart. I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. I have not forgotten about you in Babylon. I am with you. I'm here to protect you. You're mine. 
This would be a huge source of confidence for this original audience as Daniel is sharing this word with the Israelite people. But it's a huge source of confidence for us today, knowing the same is true for us. That that angelic conflict continues to rage on around us, and yet we are overcomers in Christ. We can put on that spiritual armor and we can stand against those wiles or those, those fiery darts of the devil. And so are you being intentional or ignorant about spiritual warfare? We don't need to fear it, but the Bible has called us to prepare for it because it is real. That's one of the things that we see here. But we have no need to fear because God rules the hidden realm. And so he goes on here. Let's continue on in the passage. Verse 15. It says, While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and was speechless. Suddenly one with human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and I said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, because of the vision, anguish overwhelms me and I am powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now I have no strength and there is no breath in me. Then the one like human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, do not be afraid. You are treasured by God. Peace to you. Be very strong. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. And now we head into chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we begin to see him lay out specifically a prophecy of what is to come for the Israelite people. Now, what's so significant about this prophecy is what God is predicting is going to happen and what does come to happen, what, what does come to pass, is going to take place during a time known as the 400 years of silence. Once all of the Old Testament scriptures would have been written, there was going to be a season of 400 years in the history of Israel where there was not going to be a prophet. There was not going to be any new scripture written. And the people of Israel were going to feel like we are not, like we haven't heard from God. Now think about this. God had been interacting with these people for years. He'd been talking to them through prophets. He'd been interacting with their leaders like Moses and now there's going to be silence. But what God does here in chapters 11 and 12 is he, he not only gives them a prophecy of what's going to happen during those 400 years, he's going to remind them that God directs human time. And that's our third point. He says here in verse 2 of chapter 11, now I will tell you the truth. Now I'm going to explain to you what's going to happen. And he begins to do this. Now in the first few verses, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 11, he refers to what we looked at a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 8. He gives a four, kind of a three-verse section on what he talked about all in verse in chapter 8. He's going to talk about there's going to come a kingdom after Babylon. It's going to be Medo-Persia, and it's going to conquer Babylon, and it's going to rule. But after, after Medo-Persia, there's going to be another kingdom that's going to come in, the Greeks. And they're going to have this amazing leader. But he's going to die, and his kingdom's going to get divided in four ways, not to his kids. And we talked about a few weeks ago when we studied Daniel chapter 8, that has actually happened in history. A man named Alexander the Great, whom a lot of us know from outside the Bible, just studying world history, did live. And he was what was predicted. This great leader who rose to prominence and his kingdom grew quickly. But then he died. 
And instead of that kingdom going to his kids, it was divided up amongst four of his generals. And here in Daniel chapter 11, he begins to explain in great detail all the different rulers that are going to come up and reign. Now, we don't have time to unpack it this morning. But again, the handout's available, and I'd love to get that to you if you want a copy. You can come even see me directly, and I'll make sure you get a copy of that. But it's important to understand it because he starts to talk about the kings of the south and the kings of the north. And basically, you have this north section, which is Syria. It's, it's part of this empire that came out of Greece, and it's going to start warring against this kingdom of the south, which is modern-day Egypt. And they're going to be warring at each other, north and south. Well, guess what's right in the middle of those two kingdoms? Israel, Jerusalem. And so for all this time, they're going to just kind of be bantered around, ping pong. I mean, they're going to be right in the middle of the conflict. And God is giving precision details. and He's saying, this is what's going to happen. But the reason that he is doing this, I believe, is to tell them, even during those 400 years of silence, don't forget, I predicted this and it's all happening because I'm allowing it to happen. And the reason I believe that is in this text, I want to direct our attention to a few verses here where we see a specific statement made that I think is very significant. We're going to just jump right into the middle of this prophecy. But look at verse 27 with me. It's talking about two kings. It says, The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. And then look at what it says there at the end of verse 27. For still the end will come at the appointed time. He says, the king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action, then return to his own land. And then verse 29, again, at the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. He goes on to give more prophecy of what's going to happen, these different interactions. And then look what it goes down and says in verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. As I was studying these chapters, those that stood out to me three times in this little section, we keep seeing this phrase, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, at the appointed time. What does that imply? There's someone who's dictating and directing time. Well, this is all going to happen when God is being silent, but he's letting his people know that even though I'm not talking to you directly during this time, everything that's happening is still going according to my plan because I am sovereign over the physical realm and the heavenly realm. And it will happen just as I have predicted. This prophecy would remind them that God was still sovereign over wicked kings and kingdoms, that he hadn't conceded the battle or forsaken them or forgotten his people during this time, and that his plan and his purposes are always fulfilled. And so this prophecy is given to the Israelite people. It would be an encouragement to them during those 400 years of silence, even though it would not be an encouraging time. Those who would look to it and remember would be reminded of a God who's made them great and precious promises, who is in control. But as I read that, there's something, part of me, that there's a principle there that I think really applies to me today and to you today. We know that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. He came and lived on the earth. He gave his life on a cross. He was put in a tomb, but he rose from the grave because he wasn't just a man. He was God in the flesh. 
And he showed himself to many people over a course of many days, proving that he had truly risen from the dead. And he gave his apostles a call to go out and make disciples of all nations. To take that message, not and just keep it in Jerusalem, but to take it to all of the world. But even during his earthly life and ministry, he made some statements that his followers didn't even understand, where he was talking and predicting things that were going to happen in the future. And he says, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But I'm going to come back for you. And you and I right now are living in that in-between. Christ has already come. He's ascended back into heaven. He continues to reign spiritually from up there. He continues to be King of kings and Lord of lords. But he will return for us. And every moment is sooner than the last. But what are you and I to do when we're waiting for him and we have his word? But we're seeing the chaos of our world and we're seeing all these things that don't seem to fit what we think should be going on and what we think should be happening. What should we do? I think we need to remember our God directs human time. That we don't worry about those details and try to figure it all out, but that we say we're going to trust the God who's directing all of this. And he's given us plenty of instruction on how to remain faithful in this time. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And so we're going to follow him and trust him and continue to be about what he has called us to be about and trust him with the timing. God directs human time. Well, there's one more principle that I want to highlight, and that is God humbles haughty kings. Now, haughty is another word for arrogance, proud, and this has been consistent through the book of Daniel. But this one is a little bit unique. If you do some study uh, and you read some of the commentaries, these books that have been written to explain Daniel, you will see that almost all the commentators agree that there is a significant shift in what's going on in this prophecy between verse 35 and verse 36. In verse 35, it talks about this persecution that's going to happen and that some people are going to die from it. Some people are going to be persecuted from it, but it's all part of God's plan and it's going to prepare them for what will come at the end. We know from human history, this is referring to a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who made it his life's mission to try to basically destroy Israel, destroy the temple, destroy all worship, destroy all uh, biblical texts. He hated Judaism. But in verse 36, the king that's referred to through the end of the chapter, as we look at all the historical accuracy that we can go back now and see perfectly identified in history, fulfilling the prophecy just as God predicted, through the first 35 verses, we don't see that same accuracy in verses 36 through 45. It actually is a kind of a stretch to kind of make it work, to try to say, well, this is already, all, all of it's already been accomplished. And so instead of trying to force it to fit, we believe that this is actually talking about something that's going to go even beyond us. That verses 36 through 45 are speaking to something that's still yet to be fulfilled. And what I think God is doing to the Israelite people at this moment is he's showing them, I've been dealing with you. I've been speaking with you. I've been protecting you. And through you, I've made a promise that a Messiah is going to come through your people. But my plan is going to extend beyond you into the whole world. And so this king gets described. It says in verse 36, then this king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say outrageous things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because 
what has been decreed will be accomplished. Again, another statement of God's control and direction of human time. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers or the gods desired by women or for the other gods, but he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor the God of fortress, a God of his fathers did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. And he will deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign God. And he will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. This prophecy is speaking about a ruler that is yet to come who's going to, through might and materialism, buying off people, trying to give them things to keep them in his good graces and to keep their allegiance, will rise up and he will claim to be God and he will cause great destruction and great pain. This is, this is the man that is known as the Antichrist. A man that under the influence of Satan will seek worldwide control through might and materialism. But like the rest, this one who exalts and magnifies himself above every God will meet his end. He goes on in verse 40 to talk about this battle that will continue to rage at the time of the end. There's going to be all this stuff. And in verse 45, it says, he will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the holy mountain. And then listen to this, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. Why? Because our God rules. Our God humbles haughty kings. And this will be the last great opponent on earth that's going to raise himself up. But he too will meet his end and our God will continue on forever and ever because he is the real living and true God. You can imagine this might cause people to be a little bit confused, but the reality is this. He gave them a prophecy that talked about a man that was going to come, and in history tells us within the next 400 years, the man would come, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would fulfill the first half of this prophecy in chapter 11 with precision, and he would be a terrible man. But he was just a foreshadow of this Antichrist that was to come. But you and I have no need to fear. Why? Because our God that we save, who lives inside of us, and we are in him now through our faith in the gospel He humbles haughty kings. He wins. He is God. So what do you and I do then in the meantime? How do you and I find strength when our world is chaotic? Evil seems to be rising up all around us. Our voice seems to be kind of being trying to be diminished and pushed aside. As believers, we feel like we're being intimidated to live for our faith and to live boldly for Christ. How are you and I going to have the strength to endure whatever God has called us to be about here on this earth? Well, there's one more statement I want to show you as we wrap up this morning, and it's in verse 32. Would you look there with me? One of the parts of this prophecy that later is fulfilled is in verse 32. He's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, this, this evil ruler, and it says, with flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But get this, it says, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. This is an amazing statement. And here's the the key point I want us to, to think about as we conclude. The strength of the faithful comes from a growing knowledge of this awesome God. Those who are strong with a strength that endures 
don't find that strength in themselves. It comes from God, but it doesn't come from just something that God gives us kind of separate from himself. It comes from a relationship with him. It says here that those who know God would take a stand and act. That word for know in the Hebrew language is the word yada. In the Greek, it's kind of partner where it would be gnosko. It's a knowledge that comes through intimate relationship. It's not just a knowledge that's kind of abstract, like I know something about that person. It's I know that person. And our strength is going to come from our relationship, our knowledge of who God is. It comes through a relationship. And so I started to look through here and see like, what, what does that lead them to? And there are three things that we see in Daniel 10 and 11 that the knowledge of God produced in Daniel and, and in the people that would stand against evil. Their knowledge of God would first produce the strength to stand. It would also produce the strength to act. And third, it would produce the strength to persevere. Now, the natural acronym of that is SAP. So what did I do? I got on Google and I started researching SAP. Because I got distracted in my study. Or maybe the Lord led me there because something really cool I discovered about SAP. There's two kinds of sap in a tree. There's one that comes up for the roots and it's the sap that is used to actually take water and nutrients up through the roots and through the tree and out to the leafy branches where the fruit is produced. That's where it's the sap that once it goes through there and produces those nutrients, that's where we get the rings in the tree. When we cut it down, we see how old the tree is by how many rings it has. But there's a second kind of sap. It's a sap that's produced in the fruit and the leaves as they sit under the sun and the, product, uh, the process of photosynthesis takes place. This sap is produced in the fruit, and in the leaves, and it actually goes back into the tree and continues to nourish it so that it stays healthy and vibrant. And I started to think about this. Wait, you're telling me that fruit that's produced sits in the light of the sun and then it goes back into me and nourishes me. And I was immediately taken to John chapter 15 in my mind where Jesus talks about that his followers should be those who abide in him, remain in him. And he uses an illustration of a vine and a branch or a branch and a tree trunk. And he says, you should abide in me and I in you. Those who do that, I will produce in them much fruit. But those who don't, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're going to dry up. There's going to be no life in you. You know how we have the strength to endure? We become sappy Christians. <laughs> I know that's really cheesy. But maybe it'll stick. Dad jokes for the win. <laughs> but just think about this for a second. There's something living inside of us as believers now, the Holy Spirit, that is this process. It's producing this fruit in our life, right? The fruit of the Spirit. But as we continue to remain in Christ and rely on him to produce that, because we don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. We're supposed to allow it to happen. Does the tree produce the fruit? No, it just happens. They allow it to happen. 
we are to allow the fruit to produce. But when we sit there and God's producing fruit in the light of the sun, it actually not only just something that people benefit from, it actually nourishes us and continues to strengthen us so that we stay healthy and vibrant. We don't need to be dried up, shriveled up Christians being under the heat of this world and the evil and the chaos. We can be thriving, vibrant because we're not rooted in the world, we're rooted in Christ. And so you and I, we need the strength to stand, the strength to act, the strength to persevere, but that will only come if we abide and remain in Christ. And that remaining is where we find that knowledge that turns into that strength. So the question for us as we conclude, do you know that God? Do you have that that knowledge of God that's producing spiritual sap in your life? Would you pray with me? God, we're just so thankful for this opportunity to proclaim your word. And we believe that whenever it's proclaimed, it doesn't return void. It does what it's supposed to do. And so God, I pray right now, as we just did an extremely quick flyover of two important chapters in your word, that we would be reminded that everything that was predicted has happened and the things that will happen in the future, we have confidence will take place because of what has already been fulfilled. But in that, God, as much as that prophecy amazes us and it's exciting to see and and maybe makes us feel more confident when we start to understand the Bible better, I pray this morning that our attention would be drawn beyond the prophecy and onto the God who made the prediction. And that we would focus our attention on, on a God who responds to humble prayer and a God who rules the hidden realm and a God who directs human time and a God who humbles haughty kings. And we would say that is the God that I need to remain in and abide in and find my strength in so that I can maintain that spiritual sap that's gonna allow me to stand and to act and to persevere, to be faithful to you and to be fruitful until I'm with you. I pray that for our church. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who says, I don't have that relationship or I'm dry, I pray that they would, they would seek to, to understand what it means to start that relationship or to be grafted back in and allow your Holy Spirit to produce that in their life once again. God, let this Old Testament prophecy encourage your New Testament believers as we await your soon return. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.